but it is awesome to be able to do two things uh, that you really do love, that you look forward to doing. You know, I don't ever get up, have that feeling of, I hate this job. That's the voice of Josh Bubeck, owner of the Rustic Muse, and I'm excited to talk with him right after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey everyone, what do you know about Shaper Tools? Specifically, the Shaper Origin. As a listener to this show, you can try a Shaper Origin risk-free for 30 days in your own shop. That's right, in your own shop. Just by visiting shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand to learn more. The handheld CNC router that has brought digital precision and efficiency of workflow to so many people is yours to try risk-free. Use it to tackle your joinery, your cabinetry, your hardware installations, and more with speed, precision, and the reliability your business needs. If you want to learn more or to give it a risk-free 30-day try, just visit shapertools.com forward slash furniture brand or check the link in the show notes. And now on with the episode. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Josh Bubeck, owner of the Kansas City, Missouri-based furniture company, The Rustic Muse. Josh says that he runs his business part-time. And yes, technically, having another job makes the furniture side part-time. But if you talk with him about his love and dedication to the craft, or you look at his schedule and see how in-demand his pieces are, you will quickly see that his furniture business is anything but part-time. Having to split one schedule makes you incredibly efficient in figuring out what works and what needs to be reassessed in your day. Lessons that part-time and full-time business owners alike can learn from. Follow along as we talk about why you don't always follow your passion, time management, what's in a name, and much more. So let's jump right into this episode and hear Josh's story in his own words. I will say that my story is probably very similar to many, many other stories in the fact that I didn't necessarily grow up uh, around furniture or woodworking so much. I had an uncle that uh, was into it. Um, I mean, this guy could build an entire house and finish the inside, build the furniture inside. He did everything. So he was fun to watch growing up. But uh, no, what really got me into it was my wife and I bought our first house. And it was kind of that special moment where, you know, you're living in your very first house, you're not renting. And some of the furniture, I just decided I'd take a stab at, I guess, to make myself. And then like so many other people, you know, you start off buying either two by four, two by six construction grade fur and a Craig jig pocket hole jig and you make say like mine was a, a coffee table made the coffee table in the garage had fun doing it had no idea what i was doing i mean i didn't mill it they were two by six so i didn't mill anything i just uh, used glue and pocket screws and made it put it together it was very satisfied and then you know with any type of construction grade material you use within six months started to shrink uh crack quite a bit which you know, it was kind of disappointing. I didn't know anything about wood movement at the time. And then you see that happen. You're like, well, I'm doing something wrong or there's something I don't know. So then that kind of made me uh, dive, I guess, deeper into into books. And uh, of course, social media too has a lot of information. 
I kind of continued from that. Uh, my next project was a dining room table. And I used hardwood, actual hardwood for this one. I used ash. It was probably the cheapest hardwood at the time. Anyway, that turned out really good. I, I really enjoyed that process. Learned a lot during that process. Uh, learned you don't have to use pocket screws for everything. So I learned a little bit about joinery and whatnot. And, um, and then from there, I think what really kind of got me motivated to look at, at it in terms of a business uh, was uh, my wife wanted a one of those popular uh, walnut live edge charcuterie board. So I made her one of those. And then my wife actually owns her own business at a salon. And so all her friends and clients wanted the same thing. And it was around the holidays. So I started dishing out those things like a factory. And I mean, I sold probably somewhere between 70 and 80 uh, over the holidays of those which gave me an income to kind of invest into uh, more equipment, such as like a joiner, planer, uh, a cabinet table saw. And from there, you know, uh, I started going into more like cutting boards and staying with the charcuterie boards, which uh, for anyone, I think that kind of wants to get into it, whether it be part-time or full-time and you don't have very many tools, I always think that the whole charcuterie board craze and the cutting boards is a great place to start because you need very minimal tools. And uh, especially in the holidays, man, you can sell a lot of them. Um, it can really give you a lot of money in the, to invest into whatever you want to do in the world of working. But uh, no, that's what I did uh, my first year really being a business, got a website, started shipping cutting boards, charcuterie boards. It was a lot of fun, I guess, but at the same time, it's, the more you get into, you know, woodworking and furniture making, uh, the less you really want to do cutting boards and charcuterie boards. So I went from that, taking the money I took from that, uh, like I said, I invested in the machines, good machines, good hand tools, good uh, power tools. Um, and then I started uh, digging deeper into furniture. I think I will say what I think that if you're ever starting off and interested in this, the place to start is with your own home. You know, if you start off with uh, the two by fours, two by sixes, uh, construction grade fur that's high in moisture content, probably 18, 20%, uh, you're going to get a chance to see what wood does when uh, it dries. So when you're working with uh, wood that's too wet and it gives you a kind of an idea of the direction wood moves when it when it does move like that first coffee table i built i still have sitting in my living room and there'll be times where i'll stare at it and just just to, you can stare at it and really under, get a good understanding as far as what directions uh wood moves and what's going to do anyway uh continued to actually build stuff from my own home and that way i kind of built a portfolio that i could put on a website and then like uh so many other people you got those close friends that are interested and and uh, you can kind of cut them some good deals to get some more stuff made until you really build a, a decent sized portfolio. Uh, and that's why I did probably my first year, year and a half, and then started reaching out to many uh, interior designers in the Kansas City area. And I got a good feedback from them and they've given me a lot of work. But I will say, you know, through all of this, I, I do do this part-time. Um, I have been working at the fire department now for like 14 years. And I work 55 to 70 some hours a week there. So the time I do have in the shop to do this is very, very limited. So it's, uh, 
it's something that I really enjoy doing, but it's also something that uh, I'm not striving to go full-time in. Um, I see a lot of guys go full-time, and I have the most respect for those guys because I can only imagine the grind that they're going through every day. But I'm, I say, fortunate in the spot that at least this point in my woodworking business and career that I've been able to set my shop up the way I want it, uh, and I can take on kind of the jobs that I want to take on and I enjoy doing it. I'm not, I'm not having to take everything. Most of my bigger builds came through interior designers. Um, they are, if you're just starting out for business and once you got your portfolio going, interior designers, especially if you're in a large metro area, they are like the best people to reach out to. You can reach out in social media or whatever, you know, leave them your card or, or whatnot, but they always bring good work, uh, good prices. But, but yeah, that's where I'm at today. I want to get into the part-time versus full-time furniture and and that whole storyline you have going on. But I want to also make a note of you saying that your own story is a story that you've heard a lot of people tell before, that they needed furniture for a first house, and that's how they got into it. And just because that is a story that's told a lot doesn't mean it's a bad way to start. Furniture is all around us from when you're a baby. And the moment you realize that there's an outside world, you're interacting with furniture. And so if you were never given that look into the idea of building furniture, then you probably would never think that it it comes from somewhere because it's just like breathing. You don't think about breathing just like you don't really think every time you walk into a room where did all this furniture come from. But when you do buy a house or when you are in a new space and you don't have any furniture, that's when a little a little light goes off in your brain and you think, oh, furniture comes from somewhere. I wonder where it comes from. And some people go out and buy it, but some people like you and many other people who have started furniture companies are like, oh, I could build furniture. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's amazing to me. Like if I think back, you know, seven, eight years and looking at furniture, looking at it, say whether it's a mid-century modern or a traditional or a piece from the 1800s, like it really didn't mean much to me. You know, I was not into furniture, but now after really digging deep in this stuff, everywhere I go, it's like you notice, I notice every piece of furniture, you look at the curves, the type of wood, you try to figure out how they made it. It is, I mean, that's a solid, solid point there. You really, it kind of changes your surroundings as far as what you notice when you go places. It's always on your mind. Let's get into the part-time, full-time, and I'm not going to ask you why you're not going to go full-time in furniture, because I think I get it. You have a good job, good benefits, and good hours in your job, and it's something that you love working at the fire department, and there's nothing wrong with having a job that you love. Actually, on the contrary, it's a great thing. It's a great thing to have a job that you love and then to be able to do something else, in this case, furniture, and also love that. So people strive their whole life to have one career that they love and having two and 
having the ability to do both of them is a great thing. So my hat's off to you. And I'm not going to ask why you're not going to go full time from that. But what I am going to ask is some people, they they have a let's call it a passion. That's a, a big umbrella word, but we'll call it a passion for furniture making. And they started and they just they just can't stop and they need to do it full time all the time. You're somebody who really does have a passion for furniture. You jumped right in and you started researching it and you understood it not on a on a surface level, but on a much deeper level, but you don't want to go full time. In your mind, how do you make that that switch from loving something like furniture, but not putting all your effort into it, not putting all your eggs into that basket? Because I know there's people out there who love it, but they don't want to go, they don't want to lose their job. What does that balance look like for you? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. When I first decided I was going to kind of run this as a part-time business, uh, you know, I, I say part-time, but I, like I said, I'll do 55 to 70 at the fire department. And then on top of that, you know, I, if I had a project from, uh, with a date, I, I'm typically, or a completion date that I'm typically going to be working 40 hours uh, a week to get that done. I totally understand i guess where most people come from when they start building furniture and they love it so much like i i i could work 8 a.m to 8 p.m building and it would feel like three hours you know it just it's nothing to me so i understand just the needs and the love for it um but i guess what i had to tone down a little bit is uh having kids that six and ten they're they're only this young ones so I had to cut back those hours because like I said, I, I mean, I could work all day in the shop and not, you know, not even notice time. Um, so I had to tone down the time spent in there. It is awesome. I, I mean, I, I love my job at the fire department. I'm, I'm going to retire there, but it is awesome to be able to, to do two things uh, that you really do love that you look forward to doing. You know, I don't ever get up for work, whether if I'm going to build a piece of furniture or going to work the fire department, I don't ever like have that feeling of I hate this job, you know. So it is awesome, uh, and I feel like I'm very fortunate to have that. But it is it, I guess it is a little bit of a struggle doing the furniture part time, and the fact that I'm always wanting to get out there, you know, on my days off. So so it that is a little bit of a struggle. Uh, you really gotta kind of cut your time back in that uh, meet with the family and no, I guess. And that would kind of explain the direction I'm, I guess I'm going with my business right now to where I'm going. I have a few more custom builds left, I think uh, this year and in next year, but I'm going to go into, I believe it's called the ready-made uh, base, essentially building your own designs, your own furniture, and then selling them. That way I can still get in there and enjoy it and, build things I want to build and kind of fulfill that need in my life to build furniture. But I don't have the stress of time, you know, time restraints or having to go in every day after the fire department and work on that. Therefore, 
I'm still enjoying it. It's both good and bad. I feel like uh, the part-time thing, like if I didn't work at the fire department, man, I would be like, no, I'm doing this full time. You know, <laughs> this is, this is what I want to do. And I totally understand people's opinion on that, on that and, and why they do that. Um, but I do uh, also enjoy the fact that where I'm taking this is the fact that I can just kind of learn more and continue to grow knowledge wise and, and do what I want with it as far as build. There's that line between people running their business full-time and people running their business part-time. And you might think that there's not a lot that you can learn from a part-time furniture maker because they don't have the same stresses of having their only source of income. And you might think that, that it's sort of a a different situation and the lessons learned from one can't really equate to the other. But I disagree with that opinion because I see a lot of things that you can learn from one to the other and back. One thing that I see a lot with part-time furniture company owners, and I'd say part-time, but I know that anyone who has any type of furniture business is always working a lot in that business. So part-time maybe on paper, but in reality, it's full-time hours and full-time spent in your mind working on it. But I see people who have part-time furniture businesses really able to focus on work to turn away. They aren't doing this full-time and they have the luxury of picking and choosing projects that they either want to do or work for them, or expand their skill set. Turning away projects and the ability to say no to a client is something that full-time furniture makers really, really struggle with. So I want to talk about how you figure out what type of jobs you want to take on, and more importantly, how you tell clients this is not a project that I can do now, but don't leave them with a sour taste in their mouth. And hopefully if they have another project in the future, still come back to you. Right. Uh, well, that, to be honest with you, is probably something I'm, I'm still working on. <laughs> it is, you know, it is still hard for me to say no uh, to the people, uh, especially have hundreds of uh, other firemen on the department friends and stuff so saying no to them is definitely hard especially especially if it's something that I've built before but no I think I've I have gotten better and gotten to the point where I just have to you know you explain to people what you're doing and where you're wanting to take the business you pretty much hit the nail on the head with one of the things I probably struggle with the most um is is saying no like I you know I I do and to be honest with you, one of the things that has made it easier for me is through my website uh, pricing, I've just put a $5,000 minimum for custom orders. And so uh, right now I'm still in the custom business. Like I said, I haven't fully gotten out of it to gearing towards what I'm wanting to do. But if somebody read that on my website and they still reach out to me then i know that whatever they want you know 
for that price, I'll probably do it for them. So it makes, I guess in that sense, it makes it a lot easier than, hey, can you do this little thing? Can you do this little thing? And, or this little end table, whatnot. Uh, if, if they're coming into it to, to talk with you and they know your minimum, uh, they know that, you know, it's, it's just not going to work out for, to ask for something that I'm probably not interested in, if that makes sense. Um, I guess putting that minimum on my website has helped me uh, not necessarily have to turn down customers, but in the sense that, uh, well, it definitely slowed me down. Uh, there's, it, I haven't got as many messages when uh, through my website when they see the 5,000 minimum. And that's what it was intended to do. Uh, it was to slow everything down. You kind of proved my point right there that, it's hard. It's hard to turn work away. It's hard to say no to people, but that $5,000 minimum or putting any type of minimum on the work you take in is a great way to really make sure that the people who are coming to talk to you about furniture are serious about furniture. And even more than serious, they they're on the same page as you price-wise and it might be hard face-to-face to tell somebody that you can't take their project on but setting that minimum is a great starting place for that reading through your website you make mention of the shop owner you'll talk to the shop owner or you refer to yourself as trm or the rustic muse and you don't really go into you personally saying your own name or having sort of an about page or say i'll reach out to you or josh will reach out to you you keep it a little bit removed from that personal touch that a lot of people who are sole owners of the business they want to really lean into is there a reason that you you sort of keep yourself removed from the personalized part of it uh no not really i think uh i think that if i was into this full time uh i would definitely spend a lot more time updating uh, and putting a bio on my website um because i mean i totally i guess i understand the importance of that to be honest a lot of that as far as the more personal side of being on my website in my business it's not that uh, important to me. I, I do have, I feel like I do a lot on social media. I think pro- my social media probably gets most of the traffic uh, as opposed to my website anyway. But honestly, I probably just need to go in there and do some updating. It's been insane. I know I have a lot of stuff that's for sale on the website that's sold out and I haven't, I haven't had the time to update it. I did want to mention though, with that, well, we're talking about the 5,000 minimum, not only does it, it can it kind of helps you in the fact that everything I build I'm not selling for five thousand right so if somebody presents you with a project that you really want to do then uh, you can obviously uh, I'll drop that price significantly you know I don't mean to get back into it but the minimum does help slow uh, some of the requests down but it's very negotiable upon whether you want you're wanting to take the project on 
Yeah. Now that you bring that up about my website, I do, I do need to get on there and probably do some work. It's been a while. Hey, we all, we all need to do self-maintenance in our business. And there's, there's always parts that sort of fall by the wayside because running a business is very hard and running it as a secondary business and also doing something else, your time gets split and it's hard to focus on both. So that's a perfect segue into your scheduling. And when you do have projects that are custom projects and you're working with interior designers, they have schedules. They have projects at a certain date for their clients. And they might know that you're doing another job, but just because you're doing another job alongside your furniture company doesn't mean you get to have twice as long lead times. It doesn't mean that you get to just deliver it whenever you want. So for people who are running a furniture business alongside another job, how do you schedule your projects and make sure that you can still make deadlines for clients? Another good question, especially doing this part-time, when I'd reach out or if say interior designer reaches out to me, uh, I never even mentioned the fact that, Hey, I do this part-time, you know, unless they ask, I don't care, but you know, I, I I don't present myself as a person that, Hey, I just do this part-time, you know, it's going to take me this long because of that. Uh, Say uh, a dining room table. Uh, I, I think one of the styles I get asked about the most are what I call the square turn pedestals that I cut on the bandsaw. Being a small shop like myself, I don't have some of the industrial size equipment. I don't have a wide belt sander, obviously, you know. Anyway, with that said, uh, and then my work schedule at the fire department and two kids, your my lead time is is very unpredictable. So basically, if if say a dining room table, someone uh, wants me to build them their you know eight foot by forty two inches wide dining room table, two pedestal bases. I'm going to give them pretty standard lead time of about 12 weeks, um, sometimes 16 weeks. Uh, it kind of depends what time of the year it is, uh, especially if it's the summer, it's probably going to be 16 weeks. Realistically, you know, if I were to work that project every single day that I had available outside the fire department, I could probably get it done in about four to five weeks. But the unpredictable part is, well, the fire department, I get random overtime so there's that aspect but then when you have kids uh, i know know, a lot of people build furniture have kids and kids are active kids are in sports their schedule is always changing you know so a day off from one job that you are supposed to have eight to 12 hours of work in the shop might turn into three to four hours if your kid gets sick in school and you gotta go pick them up or you know you gotta take them to practice or so point being is you got to give your lead time. I've, I've learned at least double what you expect, if not more, depending on the project. Cause I, I take a lot of pride in my deadlines. You know, if I say, Hey, I'll have it done by June 5th, you know, for sure. Then I'm going to absolutely make sure it's done by June, June 5th, if not sooner. So I think it's very important to any clients or interior designers to build that reputation and relationship with them. Yeah. I'd, I definitely don't. I don't think I've ever been late on deadline, but uh, I have given some probably extra long ones too. A misconception about lead times is that you're not giving the amount of time it's going to take you to build that piece of furniture. You're giving an amount of time that 
you can fit that piece of furniture into your schedule. And what you're saying is a perfect example of that. You can build something in two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, but your lead time has to be 12 weeks because you need to fit that into your schedule. And that's with you having another job. And that can also be with a full-time business when you have six other projects before this and you think, I can build this piece in a week, but I'm six weeks out on other projects. And so I have an eight-week lead time for this, even though I can build it in a much shorter time. Making sure that you don't give a unreachable goal for your lead time saves you a bunch of headaches down the road because yes, there are clients that have specific move-in dates or they have specific times when they need something delivered. But most of the time, they're asking you what the lead time is. And if you give an unrealistic date based on your schedule, then you're only hurting yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about moving away from custom furniture and getting more into furniture that you're building because you want to build it. And then you put it out there and people can buy it. And that is a much different world than custom because custom, as everybody knows, somebody comes to you, they have a list of things that they want and they say, I like this picture. I like this design. I want it in this. I want it in this. And you work with them and you build a custom piece, but ready-made and your own idea of furniture is a much tougher thing to sell because you need to make it. And then you need to find that audience that is going to buy it. Custom furniture, the audience brings what they want to you, but this you need to figure out where your furniture fits in the bigger scheme of people buying furniture. So have you thought about that, how you're going to be putting it out there and, and advertising it and the people that you want to reach? Yeah, uh, I definitely thought about it. Uh, it's, you know, uh, like social media in general, I feel like does some pretty good advertising for you. So I'll be using a lot of social media. Um, the other thing that I've kind of gone back and forth with for probably the last six months is taking the rustic out of the name. Uh, I do like rustic furniture, um, but I'm kind of slowly, uh, I'm enjoying, I, I honestly, I never used to really be a, a big fan of mid-century modern, um, but I've really grown to appreciate it. And I actually want to do some mid-century modern pieces. I think my style is going to kind of keep evolving and changing. Um, right now, I'm kind of, I've always been big and bulky and bold, everything. I, I mean, almost everything I make is from eight quarter lumber. And so it's expensive for one. Uh, but no, I think as far as moving forward and build, building ready-made, probably start with posting on my website when I, get some inventory. Um, I might even go to a couple shows here in, in Kansas City, purchase a stand. You know, there's ways like that. And that, for the most part, be focusing on smaller items that are more shippable, uh, in tables, smaller coffee tables, 
also want to um, reach out to some of the stores uh, that are made, well, they have a lot of different locally made stores here in Kansas City. So I plan on reaching out to some of them, see if they'd be interested, but that is kind of, uh, it's unfamiliar territory for me. So we're going to kind of see how it goes, you know, I, like you said, you're right. It's, it's going to be interesting to see how it goes. Uh, it's a hundred percent different than custom, but I think it's something that I'm going to enjoy. So it's something I'm going to at least take a stab at and see how it goes. You bring up a really good point about the name and naming your company and how at the beginning, what you're looking to get out of your company and what you're looking to produce and the face that you're trying to show the world can evolve and can change as you get more into the industry and understand the industry better and your design or your style or just the way you want to present yourself can change. And I hear that. I hear that with a lot of people who start out with a a name that pigeonholes them and not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but sometimes it does make sense to have a little bit of a broader name when you start out and then you can pinpoint as you go where you want your business to go and your name won't hold you back. Have you been seeing that over the years that having a descriptive style in your name has been, I don't want to say holding you back, but has been really focusing the client's that you get on the type of furniture that you're building? Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily, uh, I'm sure a big part of it is the name. I, I, for instance, uh, doing something like, uh, recently, I think in the last year did a couple matching end tables. It's really hard for me now to, uh, spend so much time on say a piece uh, in table or whatever it may be. And then at the end, the client wants it distressed, you know? So then you got to go back to your work and rough up the corners and uh, give it that distressed look. I mean, you spend so much time keeping everything clean and then go back and it's like, you mess it up. Now, I mean, I like the distressed look, don't get me wrong, but as from a woodworking aspect, I guess, uh, that has become a little bit, a little bit rough. So yeah, I mean, the name, I think, I think you hit it right, right on when you're you're saying if you're starting off, man. It, I wish I would have just had a broader name, you know, uh, and not committed to necessarily the word rustic. Um, I won't say it's held me back. I think it's actually probably helped bring clients. But as you as I progressed and wanted to take on and do different styles, that's where it kind of conflicts a little bit. I guess I guess you could say the ideas around a furniture business that are swirling around in your head are are always important and always something that you should get into and you should explore but there's also the the physical aspect of the furniture business that these are real pieces that start in your imagination but they get made and they get built and then they're in your shop and you need to do something with them you offer free delivery for any piece that is in your area, in the Kansas City area. And you really shy away from shipping things. And I get that because shipping is a whole nother world and 
frustrating and comes with a lot of challenges in its own right. So you're doing local delivery, but still delivering something from your shop to a client's home can be a struggle, especially you mentioned most of the pieces you're building are out of eight quarter stock and they're thick and they they have some weight to them. How are you delivering your pieces and how are you getting them there? And how are you being able to justify free delivery? Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> resort back to the fire department again. Uh, in the fire department, there is there's a bunch of guys that work part-time in the trades and we all kind of help each other out, to be honest with you. I have a, one of my best friends is an HVAC guy. Anytime he needs something moved, I go help him move it, basically a unit out of a house or inside of a house. And there's a couple other guys be flooring. I mean, there's, there's a number of guys decking. And anyway, uh, so as far as delivery goes, I can justify free delivery because I get free help for that. Uh, I have like two to three, sometimes four if needed guys that, Will I give them a date and they're going to show up and they're going to help me deliver it. If I need an extra space in a trailer, I got a guy for that. And basically we all help each other out. Uh, and I return the favor to them, but uh, keeping delivery to the Metro only gives you about a, you know, the most typically it's going to be about 45 minute drive, maybe an hour at the most. So a little bit of drive time, but I'm not, paying anyone to basically uh, help me deliver. So that's that's how I am able to get away with the free delivery. And I think it's a pretty good, if I'm a client anyway, or if I'm going to a furniture store and I'm buying furniture, typically there's a large, a, a fairly high delivery fee involved with that. So I think that kind of helps uh, spark interest for clients as well. You're leaning on your community and it just so happens that it's your firefighter community, but you could also be leaning on a woodworker community, on a furniture maker community, and having like-minded people helping you out and you return the favor and building things by yourself in your shop. There's a satisfaction in that, but that's a very small worldview. If you want to build furniture, that's fine. But if you want to build a furniture business, you need to know that there's a big world out there and you need to be able to expand and you need to be able to lean on people who are in your community for help at times, whether it's help talking about building or talking about business or physically helping you move things. Those are all things that community gives you. Absolutely. Like you said, not, whether you have friends, family, uh, in my case, the fire department, but uh, others in your area that are the woodworking community, just to be able to help each other out goes a long ways in, in whether you're full-time, part-time, or whatever. You've talked about how you're active on social media, and a lot of furniture makers nowadays are active on social media, and that's a place that they can build a community. What What do you feel like are your takeaways from being a furniture maker how has that helped your business grow or hurt your business grow first off i think you know the there's kind of that woodworking community on social media um which i think is is great you know uh you learn a lot from other people it's uh, i'm a very visual learner myself so uh social media really helps me in some learning I think there can be 
Uh, and then of course for your business and your advertisement, uh, one of the biggest things that helped me sell cutting boards when I first started was Instagram ads. I mean, you can set the ad for, I don't know, so many days, so much money. And uh, I got quite a bit of sales from just Instagram ads when I first started. I didn't have a following or anything, you know, I had maybe a couple hundred followers and I had pictures of my cutting boards and my charcuterie boards and ads over Instagram really helped with that, especially during the holidays. So that helped the business. Uh, and then as far as learning um, and inspiration for furniture pieces, you can always pull something away from social media from that. Uh, I will say, I think there are some negative aspects from from uh, social media and the fact that if you're looking at it as a learning tool, there can be a lot of wrong things on uh, social media. And if you're using that as your single source of learning, um, you might be taking away some of the wrong things. Uh, I always tell people, people ask me, hey, where did you learn this word? You know, and a lot of times my answer to them is a good old fashioned book, like a book that's old or a book that's about woodworking, there's hundreds of them out there, but something that's been around for a long time, uh, Lost Art Press, I know has some good ones that I've relied on, but a good book, as far as a joinery book or whatever it may be, it may be a, a book about wood species or whatnot, but there's a lot of knowledge I think to take away from a, a hard copy book, as opposed to learning everything on social media. There's knowledge that you can you can get from from anywhere. And like you said, it you need to make sure you're vetting that knowledge and running it up against a couple different sources because you want to learn the right way that works for you, but still you want to make sure that the techniques are proper and that what you're learning on a video and then doing and sending to a client isn't going to come back to you in six months or a year as a return product. So I completely agree that learning from multiple sources and checking those sources against each other is the way to do it because you don't want to have those issues in the future hands-on experience um, trying new things also uh, in the end is always a big takeaway of learning going further down that road of of knowledge and sharing knowledge there are people who are looking to start a furniture company whether it is full-time or part-time like you're doing and those people are looking for answers on how best to start their business and then there's also people out there who have been doing this for a long time, either full-time or again, part-time, but they don't feel like they're, they're getting everything out of their business that they can. As somebody who's been doing this and has been successful in the industry, what's some advice that you could share with people who are looking at you in this industry and saying, I also want success? Well, I think... Kind of depends somewhat on where you're at as far as you know starting this business but if you're someone who looks at it and they're like you know that that looks fun i enjoy working with my hands that's something that i think i want to get into as far as starting off i know i kind of talked about this earlier but 
if you're starting off or wherever you may be, if it's early stages of getting into it, you're obviously not going to have that many tools and, you know, tools are expensive. So I would always recommend to people to start off with what you can. Uh, I remember my first board that I sold to somebody with some friends and it was like a walnut and it was walnut, face grain walnut with some strips of ash in there. I think I cut it on my Ryobi nine amp table saw glued it up and then i planed it down with a number six jack plane and then sanded it and you know what it turned out pretty good but that's the only tools i had and i think that was the first board that i ever sold so as far as, as getting into it and, and growing or whatever you got you obviously you got to start with what you got um and if cutting that's why i keep referring to the cutting boards and the charcuterie boards because you can sell those and you can get an income to grow your business, to do the things that you want to do. Uh, pricing, your motivation, I don't, I don't think for anyone getting into this or, or building this should be at first to make money. I mean, basically, you're looking to return everything you make into tools to grow. So whether you're building furniture for your own house, which you're not profiting on, or if you have some close friends that have an idea that you want to make to build your portfolio, Price them in a way that will help them out. Price them for the material cost. And that way, yeah, just do whatever it takes to build build yourself a portfolio. And the Instagram or whatever other social media platforms out there, they do help you grow. Um, they do get your name out there. It's amazing, really, in the world that we live in today, how much marketing there is on social media. It blows my mind still how much marketing and business is on social media and how well it does. Um, I think especially for the industry of furniture making, you almost, you have to be on it. Um, and I think you can be successful on it if you do good work and you're consistent with it. But yeah, as far as growing your business, that was the question, right? Growing your business and getting to a point uh, where you're successful, start with what you have, make that work and, and invest in your business with your returns. Definitely. And Take good pictures, man. Take good pictures of your furniture or whatever you're building. Get a good background. I finally invested in a uh, black backdrop and some scene lighting for furniture. And I'm still playing with that, kind of learning how to get use light to my advantage. But, but yeah, those are some things I would say. You got to present yourself well. You got you to gotta show that you know what you're talking about in your pictures and also in the way you talk about your work. And I want to thank you for doing that for us right now with your knowledge of the furniture industry and, and presenting to everybody listening your knowledge in a way that we can all hear it and understand it and learn from it. So thank you for that. I really do appreciate your time and I wish you nothing but success in the future. All right, man. Well, I greatly appreciate you having me on the show. Uh, I look forward to seeing what you have planned in the future as well. Thanks so much for listening to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere you like to listen. To learn more about the show, you can visit buildingafurniturebrand.com. And feel free to reach out anytime to say hey, ask a question, or suggest a guest for future episodes. Our email is hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can follow along with me on Instagram at thebuildwithethan, and I can't wait to bring you the next episode.
This show is produced and edited by me, Ethan Abramson. Hope you enjoyed, and thanks so much for listening. The Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson podcast is proudly part of the Woodpreneur Network, the media network and community for wood entrepreneurs. Check out woodpreneurlife.com for more information.